And I got on stage. I didn't know what I was saying, so I just told some like jokes we told in our family to each right. other. And uh, I remember the guy just said, uh, "We can't take our eyes off you. You have something. There's some talent there. You got to work on it." I'm saying it so softly now, but let me tell you, when that person said that, it was, it was like the words I'd been waiting to hear my entire life. Hello, and welcome to the No Name NYC podcast. My name is Eric Vetter. I want to welcome you folks. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you're tuning in for the first time, welcome. Pull up a chair, get comfortable, sit down, get a snack, get a beverage. If you are returning, well, you know, do the same thing. And welcome back. It's good to see you or hear you or whatever we're doing right here. The voice you heard up front was the one and only Ophira Eisenberg wonderfully funny comic. You may know her as the host of the longtime uh, series on NPR, Ask Me Another. You may know her from her stand-up. Her latest special is on YouTube. It's called Plant-Based Jokes, and it is wonderful. She's the author of a memoir called Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy, one of my all-time favorite book titles. And she now has a wonderful new podcast. I got to stop using the word wonderful. It's going to seem insincere after a while. It's really great. How about that? Really great new podcast called Parenting is a Joke, where they discuss the trials and tribulations of being a working artist who is also a parent. It's very funny, and you should check that out. We'll get to the conversation with Ophira in just a minute. If you're listening to this when this was released, on our release date, it is the day after Halloween, and I, I hope you all had a good Halloween belated. Happy Halloween to you. I myself don't particularly get along well with Halloween. Uh, it's a long-time mutual loathing between me and Halloween. Started out when I was a kid. Unsafe neighborhood. I was not allowed to go out and trick-or-treat, you know, unless it was within the building to a couple of apartments. My parents knew the people, and a parent had to go along. It's not lighthearted trick-or-treating is what I'm saying. Uh, and the other thing is I was a really fat kid, so Halloween costumes did not fit me, and other kids would make fun of me until I cried every year when I was a little boy. But uh, back then, Halloween really was only for kids, and I knew there was light at the end of the tunnel. Soon I was going to get too old to go trick-or-treating, and in fact, uh, teens and preteens would make fun of anyone who went trick-or-treating. Oh, you're a baby. You're still trick-or-treating. And then they would steal the younger kids' candy. Cut to several years later. I am now a college student. Lost a lot of weight. In good shape. Got a girlfriend who likes me. And she's pretty. And she likes having sex with me. And everything is great, except something has happened. Now, Halloween has started to be embraced by college-age kids. I was a college-age kid, and they're starting to have parties and celebrate Halloween. It hadn't really caught on with adults yet. But now my girlfriend says to me, I want to go to a Halloween party. I liked her. I liked having sex. I said, sure, let's do this. Even though I knew in my heart the evil was lurking around the corner waiting for me. But I tried. I tried. I really tried to get into the spirit of things. I even put together a costume that I looked like the Terminator. I had Terminator glasses and a jacket. And I borrowed a couple of water gun Uzis that actually were painted black. So they looked like the real deal. And we got invited to a party by someone I really didn't like. 
And then on the day of the party, my girlfriend said, I want to go to another party. It was thrown by somebody else who I disliked even more. We had a fight, and we left it hanging as to whether or not we were going to attend. We weren't going together, that's for sure. Well, I made the decision to go anyway. Now, you have to understand that the neighborhood I grew up in was pretty bad. In the years intervening, I had lost weight, but the neighborhood had gotten worse. Nightly gunfire and a new wrinkle on Halloween, kids roamed the neighborhood, pelting anyone and everyone, regardless of age or mobility, with eggs. And I had to walk to this party in Harlem through Washington Heights, about the only person who was white and on the streets in either neighborhood. But I'm going. I've got my costume, and I walked through... And before I left the house, I made sure to load up on eggs in every pocket of my jacket. So even if I was going down, I was taking somebody with me. And an amazing thing happened. I made it to the party unscathed. I even got some cheers along the way for my costume. I looked so badass. You know, I'll be back. Yes, I didn't even acknowledge that I was too cool to acknowledge the shit. So we get there, and I realize I've made a mistake. My girlfriend is all up in the face of some guy I'd never seen before, and she's chatting with him. And I just sat there and sulked and got very drunk, which was not my normal custom. The evening ended, and it was clear we were breaking up, and we were breaking up for good, but I'm still not ready to accept it. I had somebody drive me home. I got home okay, and I did what you do when you're 19 and you think you're in love. I realized I'd been kind of an asshole, and I called her up and tried to patch things up. Maybe we can do this. And I'm sick. I didn't throw up, but I'm sick, and I'm miserable, and I'm rolling around the ground and groaning, and, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe, you know, maybe we can do this, you know, whatever, and she wasn't having any of it. So I went to sleep, and I was miserable. Next morning, I woke up as close to a hangover as I've ever had, and I felt like shit. I said, you know, I need to go out and get some air. And I got ready to go out, and I got dressed, and I put on my jacket, and instantly every inch of my body is soaked with a mystery liquid, which is not unusual when you're on the streets of New York, but I was in my apartment. I had forgotten that I had filled every pocket with eggs. I made it to Harlem to the party safely, but alas, I had completely egged myself. Fuck you, Halloween. As a side note, the then ex-girlfriend wound up marrying the guy that she was talking to at the party, so I guess in a way she won. She also eventually divorced him, so I guess in a way I won. But since that day, I had never gone to another Halloween party until this year. I got invited to a Halloween party and I agreed to go. It's been over three decades and I decided maybe it's time to try again. I'm going to see if I can break the Halloween curse. Well, I hope you guys had a good Halloween and I hope as we speak that I've broken the curse. But if not, what the hell? We got a good show. We got a great conversation with Ophira Eisenberg coming up in just a minute. If you've hung in there this long, thank you for hanging in there. We're almost there. But first, a word from our sponsor. Escape to Green Bay. That's right. The historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast in beautiful Green Bay, Wisconsin. 
I don't know if you've ever been to a bed and breakfast before, but the breakfast in a lot of these places tends to be like a mini box of cereal or uh, some questionable fruit, things of that nature, a piece of toast maybe with some butter. But not at the historic Astor House Bed and Breakfast. Your innkeepers, Tom and Linda Steber, will provide you with a delicious, absolutely world-class breakfast every single morning. They will also make you feel welcome in any one of their five luxury accommodations, all of which have a private bath and some of which have their own jacuzzi. If you want to know what's going on around town, Tom and Linda will let you know about any special events, and they'll also make recommendations for you to any of the wonderful restaurants in town. So you can't beat it. Go. Go now. Go. Get away to Green Bay. For more information or for reservations, go to www.astorhouse.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-H-O-U-S-E.com. Get away to Green Bay. By the way, this is kind of exciting because you are now our second Canadian that, really? that we've had as a guest. If it had worked out differently schedule-wise, you would have been the first one. Well, just uh, like ju- Canada, I am second. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. no. I know. I know. We're really, we're making our strike here as first. Let's start with the start. How are you doing? I'm okay. I mean, I'm okay. That is, uh, that's the best I can do. I would say I'm better. I was actually reflecting on this this morning. During a lot of the last year, I go to therapy. I have for years and years and years. And then we are in Zoom therapy now, even though my therapist has reopened her office for people to come in person. But I'm like, I am not ever getting on a subway to do this ever again. (laughs) I I know it's like more effective to do it in person, I think. But I'm just, the convenience of Zoom is, I mean, New York, man, it's hard to get around. And I can't walk there. Anyway, so we do Zoom therapy. And she said to me the other day, Uh, you know, like, how are you? And I basically said something like, I'm fine, you know, because this, that, or whatever. During the course of the whole last year and a half, she has been trying to convince me to get on some sort of medication. I'm not anti-medication, but I felt unsure if it was the right solution for myself. Mm -hmm. And I have a little bit of a medication phobia on the level of, like, I do think um, still antidepressant and anxiety and mood regulator medicine is overprescribed. And so I'm suspicious of it. Yeah. <laughs> not, not a path I was planning to walk down, but since we're here, how long have you been with your current therapist? Uh, nine years, I think that's right. Oh, okay, right. all right. Because I was going to say, that's something you kind of want to know your therapist before you get to that point. Oh, yeah. Because, like, is this someone who's like, hello, welcome, my name is Dr. whatever, and here, take this with you. And there's a lot of that out there, and there's this a lot of I'm people saying. that find that that's what they want, and that really helps them. I am suspicious. That's just who I am. Trust me, I am suspicious across the board when it comes to this stuff. I 
I believe in the legalization and decriminalization of marijuana mm-hmm. on every level. But also in New York, when I see all the dispensaries open up all over the place, I go, or is this a ploy to keep everyone numb so the corporations can take all our money? Uh, that's where my brain goes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair place for your brain to go. <laughs> and so we're just kind of dumb and there and our rights and uh, money and everything is taken from us, but we're basically placid. I know that is like such a blanket approach to it. Anyways, my point is, is that my therapist was giving me like a really hard time. She was like, you're so low. You are so um, upset. Life is just a dark, endless pit to you. You should really consider some medication because you don't have to go through this. And mm. I kept refusing. I'm not going to say that was right, but that's what I did. And now that I am more actively employed, some of that stuff has gone. And my therapist did say to me the other day, well, I guess we learned that, you know, really we just, when you are busy and actively employed and working on things you like, you uh, are in a much healthier brain frame. And I was like, yeah. Well, good thing you got your degree so you could detect that. Came up with that on your own, didn't you? And I didn't want to be like, so all of that time we wasted sessions on (laughs) sessions on sessions. I could have just been working more. Yeah, maybe I should have put that time and energy into finding uh, projects that would give me a small amount of money for them. It was just so funny because also we would get in all these arguments. She'd be like, but if you had a heart problem, you would take medication for that. I was like, can we agree that from a medical standpoint, we know the heart so much better than we know the brain? That's a very valid point. And it's not, <laughs> not one a therapist is liable to bring up. I'm a little fascinated by this because I've just really entered the world of therapy for the first time. Mm. Um, It was something that was offered to me as a free service in uh, coping with with becoming blind. Yeah. I very much like my therapist right now, but I initially had a therapist for six free sessions as part of New York State's Commission for the Blind, you know, helping people or whatever. Sure, let's do this. Why not? It's free. Let's do this. And in my introductory thing, you know, she's asking me questions, doing the stuff that she's got to do to create a profile for me. And at one point she asked, had I ever been in therapy before? And I said, uh, well, I, for a very brief time when I was a freshman in high school, I had been in, in therapy. Um, and I actually liked my therapist, which means I must have been doing something wrong. She said, uh, like, pause it and said, wrong? What, what were you doing wrong? I don't get it. I said, oh, Okay. I should explain to you, I work in comedy, <laughs> and I was just kidding. You know, I, occasionally I may make a joke and said, oh, I don't do well with jokes. I was stunned. To me, that's a stunning admission. When you're dealing with a situation, you know, how I, do you deal with it? You deal with some humor or whatever. Uh, so I'm glad she's yeah, no I, my therapist. Yeah, I love a therapist without a sense of humor. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you know. don't they say laughter is the best medicine? But, but, but <laughs> I mean, we to, all know that's me- but penicillin. But just to say, I don't deal well with oh, jokes. And like That's so interesting because I, ta- I was talking to someone who, in a professional capacity, about working together, and they said, I just want to let you know right now, I'm not good with comedy. I was like, what? <laughs> what? You're not good with comedy. Like, all... <laughs> It's such a sweeping thing to say. And then someone, I, I, did, I was perfor- uh, hosting a benefit the other day, and someone came up to me with a compliment and said, I usually don't like stand-up comedians. And I was like, all? Like, we're talking 
people with one-liners, people with props, exactly. people with smart stuff, people with dumb stuff, every comedian that's ever existed throughout times, just all, stand-up comedians. Just as an entire that's I mean, wouldn't that be like I don't like authors? How do you get through life, you know? I sort of appreciate someone that knows themselves that way. There is that. <laughs> There is that, and also lets me know this is not a person that I want. Yeah, not to know. for me. All I mean, I would love to go to a group, uh, the I Hate Music group. <laughs> what? Wait, and, and if life had a sense of humor, the room would be filled with music. Um, yeah. So if I like pull out a clarinet, do I get like stabbed <laughs> with your own clarinet? <laughs> with oh well. Well, I want to make sure that we at least address this because I know you've been really, really busy lately. You now have a new podcast. I have a new podcast. Plugging the podcast on a podcast. This is sound it's thinking. Meta. Uh, it's very talk, meta. I, I listened to it. I really enjoyed the first episode. That Thank was really you. great. How did this come about? Did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? What? Oh, my goodness. As with many projects, I would say, this project has been floating around with me in different forms for about five, six years. Matter of fact, the producer that I'm working with, Julie Smith-Clem, who is this wonderful woman, and I consider her a friend. She lives currently uh, in Vermont, but she used to live in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. We have been talking about this project for five years. The podcast is called Parenting is a Joke. And what happened to me was I became a parent, never decided, <laughs> never decided. I obviously did decide to become a parent, but most of my life was making the decision not to be. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that had to do with I really wanted to pursue a career in stand-up comedy, and I understood that that was a poor marriage <laughs> of things, Be just even scheduling-wise. You yeah. just can't say to a kid, well, you know it would be more convenient if elementary school happened at night, because that's when I work. Yeah, exactly. I can drop you off before I do my sentence. <laughs> yeah, if elementary school could go from five to midnight, that would be perfect. But no, this doesn't work like that. And I just didn't know how to fit it in. And also, I just didn't really have a lot of the um, maternal urges. Mm -hmm. But then things changed for me. It was after I kind of got over a couple years of breast cancer diagnosis and then treatment and surgery. And then after that, for whatever reason... I decided that maybe I wanted to have a kid. But it was I was older then, so it was also kind of a daunting situation. It all worked out, you could say. So then I have this child, and now I'm trying to be a stand-up comic and have a child. At the same time, I noticed people around me, women and some guys, were all of a sudden deciding to have children. And a lot of high-profile comics kind mm, of in the true. same age range were deciding to have children. And I thought, this is so strange that all of us are doing this in the same five years, six years, seven years. Why is that? Is that something about society has made room for this in this profession? Are there just more women in it and we are changing the way we talk about stuff so there's just more of a place for people to talk about it? I couldn't mm -hmm. figure out why, but I thought it was interesting. And I was still thinking about how badly it's these careers marry together and how anyone is doing it. And so I kept going, 
I want to talk about parenting, but I want it to be funny. I have no advice to offer. This is not <laughs> expert stuff. This is not tips or tricks. This is people talking about it. And what better people to talk about it than professional stand-up comedians? And with the trend that you indicated, you're getting a longer line of potential guests. Every day someone turns <laughs> to me and goes, did you know this person is having a kid? I'm like, wait, what? what? Yeah. I have to schedule them in. <laughs> yeah. I was like, great, write them down. Uh, so it started off as a television proposal. And we shopped it around. We got a lot of interest, but no bites. I laugh about this now. I mean, podcast did seem like the right place for it, ultimately, for many reasons, even though if anyone is listening with television power, I would love to translate it into a live visual format. It's so funny because people go, well, well, that's such a specific market, which to me is hilarious hilarious because there's so many things that you could say that to. Did we not think that true crime would be a specific market? Turns out that is a huge market. Mm -hmm. The amount of people that listen to true crime, I mean, that is like number one grossing podcasts out there. But somehow parenting, it doesn't matter who you are, someone was your parent. There is great potential that you are a parent. But even if you're not, you are surrounded by people. (laughs) <laughs> so you would think so somehow, mathematically is, speaking. You would think that this is somewhat of a universal. I would imagine that in terms of selling this, uh, it's one of those things that are like, oh, yeah, I guess that would have it. But once you actually get it out there, people are like, oh, thank God someone has put this out there. Yeah, and I think with the mom stuff, personally, I found it a lot of it was not relatable for me just Mm -hmm. because I had different hours than everybody else. I was not a stay-at-home mom. I'm not a cookie-baking mom. Like, I'll bake up some cookies. But I'm just like, a lot of these things, I did not relate to them. Mm -hmm. And even though I do love a glass of wine, I wasn't really getting off on the whole, like, wine in the sippy cup kind (laughs) of, like, mom thing. And I was searching for where's the smart, like, more intellectual, darker humor kind of material on this. And, you know, sometimes you create what you need. You create what you're looking for. If you're like me at all, sometimes you find out what it is you need while you're creating it. While you're creating it. Oh, I didn't realize I was going to be doing a podcast, but here we are. And you Um, really do feel less alone. That's like a wonderful thing about being a creative person mm -hmm. is that you start creating something which often involves other people on some level. I mean, I'm always amazed of... Oh, my God, I I had no idea that person was going through the same thing. That is something I think that you can do easier with this format than others. You know, because people can listen to this at their leisure. You know, they find it when they find it. It's a little easier to just, you know, do a click and and what have you. So that's how we landed here. So I want to go to how did you land here in this country? Let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. (laughs) This country. How did I land in America? Oh, my well, goodness. Well, yeah. Well, well, America, where did you New York? originally hail from? I hail from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. It was like, you know, a very easy place to grow up in, I think. It was um, – I say was because it's just changed so much. Mm-hmm. I think when I was a kid, the population of Calgary was three-quarters of a million people, and now it is over a million. That is a huge amount of people added to that place. It was not a very diverse place for me growing up. Mm-hmm. As a Jewish person in my elementary school, I was the only Jewish person. Is that typical of Canada no, in general or no, just Calgary? No, not at all. And now that has changed too. But I think Toronto and Montreal are hailed as like some of the most diverse populations in general in North America, but definitely larger Jewish populations. But 
Calgary was not. My father came there. I'm the youngest of six. So when he came there, he was the principal of the Hebrew school. Mm-hmm. So there were some Jews. I'm not saying there were no Jews. Though he left the year I was born. And so I went to public school. Okay. And there was one other girl, but she was a few grades ahead of me, Jill mm-hmm. Smolensky. I mean, I remember my class was just extremely blonde. It was very Germanic, <laughs> Scottish, British. I mean, if I say to you a bunch of people were Anglicans, did mm. you know any Anglicans growing up? I mean, Church of England, most people when I say I knew Anglicans growing up, they would be like, well, Anglicans? They were like, that's so small. And I was like, actually, I think it's pretty big. So yeah, that just gives you an idea of the population. A little bit of trivia. I danced Ooh. as a kid and I danced in the opening ceremonies of the 1988 Winter Olympics as a child. Were you drawn to dance or was that a byproduct of being put in dance classes? Oh, no, I wanted to take dance. Oh, I wanted okay. to be a ballerina as a kid. And then my family, not from a rich family, so it was a very big deal that they afforded ballet lessons. Ballet lessons were very expensive. Mm -hmm. And I started when I was six. I went to a pretty serious school. It was the kind of school that they were like, no, we do exams. And, you know, there's a a real kind of serious curriculum as attached to the Royal Academy of Dance in England. It was like the kind of thing where my mother was like, you're doing this now. If we are paying for this, you are (laughs) doing it. And I was not great. I was not very good at it, honestly, but I got better, and then I hated it, and then I liked it, and then I got really into it, and that became my peer group, and I kept going until I was about 17. And what happened at that point? Oh, God, I liked talking. That was the problem. I was not, very not interested. in ballet? No one likes a chatty ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, I think it was clear, too, that I did not have the physical form to really succeed as a professional. Mm -hmm. I don't actually know where dance is at now. Is it more open to different body types and things? I think so. Mm -hmm. I was good, but I didn't have that sort of you were born with it thing, whether it was flexibility or different abilities. I mean, you just see people. You would see people in your class where you'd just be like, this person just can do these things somewhat effortlessly. And for me, I had to work so hard. I mean, story of my life. That's one of those things that if you can channel that into the right thing, that's a plus. But at that moment, you're like, if I bust my ass forever, I might be okay. So you decided you wanted to do something with talking. Wanted to talk. I did like school. I liked Mm -hmm. thinking. So I decided to, again, this is such of a different era, but I had this idea that I wanted to be an archaeologist or an anthropologist. I didn't really know the difference between the two. I had this whole idea that I wanted to go to Botswana, a place I've never been, and live with people there and study them. So ethnocentric. So uh, these things do not exist. I mean, they still do exist. There's anthropologists that go and I suppose study other cultures, but not, as, as I say it, there is a grimace on my mouth because that idea of the white people going into a tribe and understanding their ways. That was being pulled apart as I started university. I did take cultural anthropology, but at the time, the idea of writing an ethnography now seen very old-fashioned books from the 60s and 70s, you know, the tribesmen of the Kalahari and the blah, 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 of Papua New Guinea. I, I can't remember the exact verbiage of these books, but where it was, like, mostly white men, 
parachuting into a place and then usually offering them, you know, tobacco and alcohol in exchange to observe them and write about it in this very much like, you know, the elders are doing this very, like, from the point of view of a white industrialized nation viewing a poor unindustrialized tribe that were different. So that was all being questioned and thrown apart and seen as racist and ethnocentric and what are we even doing when the power structure is in colonial and so most of my degree was talking about, in some ways, some of the things we were talking about socially now. But at that time, to me, it was all within uh, academia that we were talking about right, how these right. texts are no longer relevant and yeah. why aren't they relevant. All that to say it was in this very academic field that I didn't know what that would lead to other than becoming an academic. My sister is a very successful academic um, in political science. And so that did look to me like a route, but I did not feel like I was good enough. I was like, oh, I have to work so hard to be good at this. <laughs> was it work that you enjoyed at least? I did, but I, I also just struggled with it. I would look around and go, God, everyone here is so much smarter than I am. <laughs> I, I have been there. But every time I gave presentations, I would get all this feedback of, I couldn't take my eyes off you. And I found the presentations very easy. So I had in my back of my mind that I was like, oh, I want to go into theater, but I had never studied at acting, or I wanted to go into stand-up. And so uh, slowly, too, I was just writing stories all the time, nonfiction stories about my life, and I didn't know what to do with them. And then uh, I moved to Vancouver, didn't know what to do. And I volunteered at the Comedy Festival in Vancouver as an usher. And you're out of university at this I'm point? out of university. I'm not sure what my next step is. I was mm. thinking about applying to grad school, but not really. I was just like, I don't know. I got a job. I was living at my sister's place, and I volunteered at the Comedy Festival, and I became friends with a bunch of people that other people volunteering at the Comedy Festival are, guess what, aspiring stand-up comedians They weren't my age either. They were all different ages. There were some people that they had a career and they just loved to do that. There were some younger people. It was just all over the place. It was multi-generational, I guess. So it didn't all feel like, oh, it's a bunch of people in their mid-20s trying to figure out what they're doing. There were people that were 40. There were people that were 30. It was just – there was like a 17-year-old all over the place. And they told me about a comedy class. Now, if anyone said to me, I want to do stand-up, what do you suggest? I would probably say go take a class. <laughs> but at the time, I was against classes. I was right, like, you right. do not learn comedy from classes. I just thought that was something that was kind of within your soul and couldn't be taught. Right. You know, I still think it is – I think it can be taught. But I think what the great thing is about a class is that if you – cannot figure your way onto that stage. And if it seems so insurmountable, because it is hard Mm -hmm. to get in front of people and probably to fail, and you don't even know, like someone says, talk for five minutes, and you don't know what that looks like, but you have some basic ideas, the creativity is there, the class will get you to that next place. And then you have to do all the hard work. That that is true. Although, Although not all classes are created equal, too. Agreed. But, but if that's what gets you on stage, whatever gets you on stage, because there's no substitute for actually being up on stage and doing it as often as possible. But some people 
won't take that notion until they've taken the class. Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think, you know, in New York, I know lots of people teach classes and lots of people take classes. And sometimes they are truly taking it from a hobby point of view, which is legitimate. Why not? They're like, wouldn't that be fun to take a stand-up class? Yeah. yeah. I took it because I just didn't know any other way. And all these people were taking it. I was like, that seems cool. However, I do remember it was not a class. It was a weekend workshop, Saturday and Sunday. It was $300, maybe a little bit more. I had like $5 more than whatever it was <laughs> in my bank account. And so my idea was I'm going to go to the class. I'm going to like check it out. And then I don't know. But the idea was within half an hour or something, I'd be like, I need to go to the bathroom. And I would just take off before paying. How long were you able to stretch that? Oh, zero minutes because they take the money up first. Like you don't ah. even get to go in the door without oh, paying. They, they know what they're doing on this. Yeah, they're like, you're here for the workshop. Where's the money? So I got there with no money and they're like, oh, you want to take the workshop? You got to pay. And I was like, huh. So I left and I walked down the street and I walked in front of an ATM and oh, I thought, man. yeah, I'm going to do it. And so I took out the cash. And gave them all my money. <laughs> I gave them all the money I had. So it was a weekend workshop. It was filled with other aspiring stand-up comedians. Yeah. Everyone went up on stage and did five minutes. It was run by this guy, Sam, out of uh, Austin, Texas, actually, uh, who was very nice. And I got on stage. I didn't know what I was saying, so I just told some like mm. jokes we told in our family to each right. other about our mom and this and that. And mostly making fun of our family. And uh, I remember the guy just said, um, we can't take our eyes off you. You have something. There's some talent there. you got to work on it. I'm saying it so softly now, but let me tell you, when that person said that, it was, it was like the words I'd been waiting to hear my entire life. And I thought, this is it. You felt like you found that thing that well, you I, didn't have to – not that you didn't have to work, but like – that, that I could had, do the kind of work. I had some natural ability. Yes. Right, right, right. Yeah, so then I'd still have to pile on the work. But I, I could start somewhere. He said that I think he was being honest. <laughs> and so, you know, the next day was like, okay, we're all going to work on like writing an act and going up one at a time in front of each other. I think there was 10 people there, so we had lots of time. And then Sunday night is the graduation show. Mm -hmm. We'll be doing it at the club and invite all your friends and also it will be open to the public. And that club, it was called Punchline, had an audience that would come to all their shows all the time. Like they were like amateur night, we'll go to that. You know, it was weird, honestly. The picture I've had painted of the Canadian scene, and of course it, that's a little bit more contemporary perhaps than what you're talking about, was that basically you've got yuck yucks and they control pretty much everything. Yeah. And then, then you've got, you know, a handful of bar shows here and there and that kind of a thing. And is, is that accurate? So, yeah, I think Yuck Yucks in Vancouver, because this was all in Vancouver, Yuck Yucks does exist there. And I think they have a pretty nice club there now. But I think I hit it in this moment where they were not there or they were closed. It was something weird, Yuck Yucks and bar shows. I started comedy just before 2000, and it was when people – Hated comedy. <laughs> Do you remember when people, I mean, right, we were so, just joking about people hating comedy, but everyone hated comedy. <laughs> you, you know, we've rethought that comedy boom. 
Yeah. Everyone hated comedy. It was, yeah. I mean, when I moved to Toronto and then subsequently New York, I realized that, you know, it was, there was all kinds of different tricks to get people in the room. But, you know, at this club, it seemed at the time there was like just people came to it as part of their routine of entertainment still. Oh, that that that's lovely because those are people who are, are, are there for the, for the right reasons, you know. Yeah, they loved get... comedy. With the scene that you had there, did you already have an eye on coming to New York, or had that come about? I mean, I basically went back and forth, not starting stand up for a while. I was scared. I was really scared of it. Mm-hmm. I was really scared of committing to it, which I think was sabotage. I mean, it's pretty classic sabotage <laughs> now looking back mm-hmm. at it. But, you know, I was scared. I was scared of what it could mean for my life and my livelihood and how hard it was. I'm so pragmatic. I'm such a pragmatic person. <laughs> and like, if I was good enough and how it worked, it, it was just all very scary. And I come from a family that does not support that kind of mm-hmm. ridiculousness. It's like, uh uh-huh, great comedy. What are you really doing? And also there was just the pure reality, which was Money. I didn't have anyone giving me money. Mm. I had to make all my own money. I mean, sure, my mother would give me a hundred bucks here and there, but it was like no one's paying for my apartment, no one's paying for my meals, no one's paying for anything. So I had yeah, to make it, the money. So it meant I had to work the jobs. So I was very concerned <laughs> about how I was going to make it happen, even in my twenties. Mm. Like I did participate in the scene, but as time moved forward, I only spent a year and a bit in Vancouver, but I did become more serious about pursuing it. But I felt like Vancouver was maybe not the place I wanted to move to New York. I was scared of moving to New York because that's, again, like another country. And it's New York, for wow. gosh sakes. So I moved to Toronto. And then I really tried to pursue stand-up there seriously. Yeah, and How, and I, how, how were you making a living at that point? Did, well, I was... In Vancouver, I worked at Kinko's. I worked many jobs, but one of them was in Kinko's in the computer part. Mm-hmm. And because I was like kind I was just an early adopter of technology, I guess, computers. And I understood them. I felt like better than most people. So I got a job and at that point, there. Probably that, that there weren't. No, people needed help with Word. I think some people were still using Word Perfect. Yeah, so I just knew it a little bit better than people, and I was a better troubleshooter. And then I worked with at Kinko's people, mostly men, all men, maybe all men, who really knew it. So I just learned a lot from them. Mm -hmm. And so when I came to Toronto, I got a job in a different place working in IT. So I, I started getting this little IT troubleshooting backup. I did a lot of time in retail. And a little bit as an office assistant, never in a restaurant except for hostessing, like seating people. But that's it. I just got these jobs in uh, IT. So I worked that in Toronto and pursued stand-up. And then I decided after five years, I made some headway in it. And I thought, I got to move to New York. Well, I still do not care about money, actually. I also moved to New York with no money. And I just thought, I still don't care about my furniture. I still don't really care about so many things and at one point I'm going to want like a nice living space. <laughs> did, did, did you have any uh, any contacts in New York at that point? I did. I had one major contact who I actually just had lunch with yesterday. We see each other rarely but it was oh, nice. nice. A friend of mine went to fashion school here mm-hmm. and then she is a fashion designer and she opened a store for her clothes that she was selling. So that was huge mm-hmm. and I lived in the storage space under her store for the first six months of coming to New York. 
So that that puts you <laughs> in the dream. Yeah, I mean, it was a I mean, it was a windowless basement that you were not supposed to live in, where like right. water bugs were flying through the cracks in the bricks. <laughs> But it was free. That's you. <laughs> were you doing IT stuff here as well? Well, first I was illegal, so no. Ah. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't working, so. But I, I, there was a certain amount of time as a tourist, you have to start going back or changing your status here. Yeah. yeah. So uh, eventually, I was like, I got to hire a lawyer, and you know, through some. People I knew, I ended up getting in touch with a lawyer, and I worked retail jobs to save money to mm. pay a lawyer to help me with a work visa. And then I got an IT job that w- would help me w- signing off of my work visa. So then I had a work visa, and then I managed to parlay that into an artist visa, and then uh, that was good for a few years. All this stuff costs exorbitant amounts of money. I don't. I'm very connected to talk about money in this thing. I don't know why. And then, and so while you're doing this, you're also hitting the mics. Yeah, and hitting the mics and getting to know people. Started a show that was, as you know, that was like a real way to get to know everybody. Provide yeah. a platform and a workout for yourself. Get to know everybody, and it was like having a gathering every mm-hmm. week or every month or whatever. It's also, you know, if you're able to have people that, whose work you enjoy. Being part of that, then it's you know it's it, it's a lot more enjoyable on the nights when the crowds aren't so plentiful. Oh yeah, right. Oh yeah, no, it was always like we're barking on the street. I mean, just mm. ridiculous measures to get people in the door. <laughs> the usual grunt work. <laughs> usual grunt work. Uh, yeah, it was funny because you know uh, now when you do a show, I find that there's maybe I mean like maybe we should go back to barking on the street because so many of the so many ways to advertise your show are gone. <laughs> They're really gone. Uh, well, it's just become digital and the digital flow is so flooded to like get people's attention is really uh, Yeah, intense. that's the thing. Everybody's t- tugging at your attention and like everything gets lost after a while or, yeah. or, or you just walk away and say, nah, you know what? I don't need to see a comedy show. Let's let's look up movie listings or something, you know, whatever it is. Whatever it is, yeah. So I wonder actually if barking on the street would work again. Because, you know, everyone's supposedly into an authentic personal approach. That would be it. But would people you, you on the street what? be I, I, like... I've recently found amongst my old stuff, I found a flyer that's got to be close to 30 years old. It says, I am here because Eric Vetter gave me this flyer and it like gave you $5 off or something oh like that. Oh my God, I love it. And like, it was probably more successful than stuff I've done since then. So yeah, I, I do wonder, and that's so funny you say that about flyers because I remember that was a thing. You had to have flyers, printing of flyers, printing of flyers. In every bar you would go to, there'd be stacks of flyers. Yeah, I, mostly used to write phone numbers on. Great, I mean, they would still have it. I used to collect flyers of all my friend's shows we put time into them. They were yeah. they had some graphic sensibility. But also you had to know someone that worked in an office so you could like use their photocopier I, at well, night. It's like maybe I'll maybe I'll see if I can hook up a job at Kinko's here. That was a different world. I won't say it was a better one. It was just different. Totally different. As we're talking about, I'm like, maybe we need to bring that one back. Anyways, it was a lot of work. Yeah. So yeah, work so then I was working IT jobs, working IT jobs, and then I met someone that I fell in love with and got married. And we lived in a tiny little apartment that was not affordable, but in hindsight, affordable. You know, we made a deal that I would not work my job and see if I could pursue stand-up comedy. 
I'd save some money in the bank and Did yeah. You set I, a timeline. Yeah, oh yeah. Always everything is like six months. Yeah, six months with a uh, six month renewal of a lease at the end of six months. So then it just became working my butt off, and you know you do whatever you can, and I did pick up some odd jobs along the way to supplement. Mm -hmm. I worked as as someone's personal assistant for a while, like whatever it took. At the time, though, so funny looking back, my goal was I had to hit two grand a month, which now, I mean, now I have a child. My life is a little bit more complicated. (laughs) Well, now the idea of like, oh, my God, hitting two grand a month, like, so that covers what? Some of the food? (laughs) So expensive. I was still working on the idea some of the rent? Not even the rent. That's just, that is. So, yeah, it was just a, a lot of uh, very small incremental steps. Yeah. But I still just hustle and work my butt off for every There's dollar. Really no substitute for that, too. Yeah, no, and you, it just keeps going. Like sometimes you get something, and that's what happens, too, is that you get something for a bunch of money. Like maybe it's a live gig. Maybe it's a bit of a project. That seems like a lot of money. You're like, but then you just go, okay, now we need... Now I want to go with the next step up. Like you, you're never satisfied. I am not a movie star. I don't, I'm sure there's some movie stars that are like I'm fine. Some, but you know, but you know, I think there's still that ego thing, of especially having done the work to get in that position. It's still like, well, you know, that's another thing about wiring is like, well, you know, that's how you play the game. Is that all right? We're done with this. Now move on to this. What was the first time that you felt you made a breakthrough? Like, well, I think you know there was a show. Comedy Central always had shows where they showcased comics in like yeah. small for small sets, like six, seven minute sets. Mm-hmm. And I got on one of those shows, hey, like a premium blend premium kind of blend. Thing. I think it was like season seven or whatever. It was one before their last. Yeah, so I just felt like that was an acknowledgement that I was doing something right. Yeah, that's what I thought. I thought it was an external acknowledgement because you get that from your audience. But there was just there was so many good comics. Yeah. So it was also like, but where do I really fit in this mix? And then I started. I found the Moth, which is a storytelling organization, and they were doing live shows in the Lower East Side at a place called the Neerik and Poetry Cafe that totally still exists with great stuff. Yeah. Uh, but the Moth is yeah. no longer there. They outgrew it. And I loved that because, as I mentioned, I was always writing these nonfiction stories about my life. And so that was a place for that material. And yeah, then, like you, you'd finally found an outlet for these yeah, things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because not everything that you were writing would have been adaptable to stand up. No, right? and, when, yeah. and at that time in New York, stand up was kind of allergic to storytelling. What was cool and what was going on was much more one liner. It was just jokes. Like yeah. the idea of like, doing something for three, four minutes, people were like, no, and, and not conversational either. And it's interesting because over, over, you know, as, as storytelling it had become a, a stronger force in the overall picture of entertainment, the line between stand-up and storytelling has frequently become blurred depending on where you're taking it in. I remember actually someone, some industry person saying that my act was very conversational and that was a negative you need to hit the punches every every 15 seconds or, you know, yeah, whatever. I feel like they wanted a fourth wall, kind of. Like you were a persona. Anyways, that was the trend. 
So, um, but anyways, and of course, like every trend, everyone, someone does something different that is seen as like the most amazing thing. And then the trend shifts. There was also people, some people were doing characters and that was a real big thing. That's true. When are you talking about? Because I I remember, actually, this was probably during the boom, but there was a wave of people like a, say, a Judy Tenuta, Emo Phillips, very like distinct oddball personas that were being put out there that had gotten away from set up punchline sort yeah. of thing. And I felt like that came back in like early 2000s. There was a whole bunch of that and and it seemed brand new. Of course, for every new audience it all seems brand new. Yeah, sometimes when you hear material that you're like I've heard this premise and I've heard this joke a thousand times before and the audience laughs at it and you just go but they don't know. They don't know that this has been said. Like only if you get into nuts and bolts and do your research, like, oh, wait, this is what so-and-so was doing 15, 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah. And it's just because also, so as we go forward, the history of this stuff increases. So there's just more out there and there's more stuff that has been said before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we you, you can you can find it easier, of course, you know. Yes. So it it's... It, <laughs> exciting, it's easier to do the research, but at the same time, like... If you fill your head up with too much of that, you can get into a paranoia of everything feels like something that's been done before. Totally. It kind of has. I mean, it kind of has, especially in the digital world. And even on TikTok, like people do jokey-okey, basically, which they Mm -hmm. do joke karaoke a lot on TikTok. Is it true? So then that's like a whole other thing. Like, what? How did that happen? So I think it, it is becoming... How, how you say stuff. Your life is your life, so it's impossible to think that anyone will ever be able to copy that. But how you present it is really the, you know, I think there's still great writers out there that are doing observational comedy that could be seen as completely universal. But I think it is harder and harder to do that, to have that, like, 100% unique perspective on someone waiting for an elevator. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's just, we're kind of beyond that. Yeah, and maybe that's why the storytelling had been merging with it because it, storytelling tends to, at least in its presentation, be more personalized. You know, it, 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 it should be. That's, you know, it, it doesn't get lost in the wash as much. Yeah, I totally agree. No, that's there. exactly. What do you personally enjoy seeing most out there nowadays. I love stand-up. Mm. I do love stand-up. And I have to admit, I don't watch a ton of it on my screen. But when I do a show, if I'm not running to another spot, I love live stand-up. I love sitting and watching the rest of the show that I'm on. Even comics I know very well who may be still honing a routine that I've seen a bunch of times. I love live stand-up comedy. My favorite stuff is the personal stuff. I like getting inside someone's head with them mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. hearing about their life. I find that endlessly fascinating. You know, when I do the moss shows or storytelling shows, the added element that I really enjoy too is I do like it when I when people veer away from needing to get the laugh to mm-hmm. say something very poignant or very vulnerable or very unlikable even about <laughs> themselves because I think that's when we all gather and go, oh, my God, that is what it is to be human. And that's when it kind of opens up and you go, oh, I don't feel alone. There was definitely a point, I was aware of a point where you were becoming more and more of a force in the storytelling and the moth. How did that affect your stand-up? I think for the better. I think because it was the storytelling 
just the way it storytelling is, is that you have to, well, it's, you're supposed to tell the truth. Like that's how it's good when you stand up there and you go, this is the truth of what happened in this situation and you piece out all the emotional resonance around something that happened as you're sculpting the story. Mm. I hate the word authentic. We're almost at the point where that word is inauthentic, but I can't think of a better word. So mm. when you're forced to be your authentic voice and then that was rewarded, so I felt like I was encouraged to be myself, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. I allowed that into my stand-up because I think in my stand-up for years, I thought maybe I needed to be someone else or maybe I needed to be a different version of myself. Was that ever a conscious choice in your stand-up writing? I tried for like three seconds. I was like, I'm because I think there was a thing where there'd be like, describe yourself in one sentence. Like, right. she's a single girl who's on the move. You needed to be this pigeonholed kind of act. They wanted this one-line elevator description of your act. And I found that very hard. So I just tried to become it. I was like, maybe I am this person. Maybe I'm that person. Was that something that you were getting from club owners or bookers or what have you? Honestly, club owners are people that are just trying to sell alcohol. So most of them that I knew That's did not have. That's certainly what it is nowadays. I never got a lot of creative feedback from a club owner, but maybe I just didn't know them well enough. Well, that, well that's kind of my point, though. It's like, it, you know, it, it, not necessarily a creative feedback, but like, you know, we need a this type, a this type or whatever, yes. because that's what the people who are coming in to buy alcohol want to see. Yeah, I got that more from the from the people that were trying to book Try to figure out how to make money off stand-ups, so agents, managers, whatever. And by oh, that, okay, they were okay. making money off them by putting them on television. And for television, they, you know, they were just like, "What's your like one-line description of your character?" Mm -hmm. So we know how to market you. Well, I'm a person who goes on stage and says funny things. Yeah, you know, no, like, no good, no good. Yeah, you can't do that. that, that yeah, that, it was like it's been done. It's heck. Yeah, so that very specific thing I always I just had a hard time with. I was like, I'm more complicated than that. I mean, I think I just also just did not feel like one thing. I know from knowing you, I, I know, you know, that you had some really well-regarded self-produced shows Thanks. in New York. What was the thinking behind that? I think a lot of it was just why wait around? Just put it out there. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, just the idea of like, hey, I could do this. I could just do, oh, you want to do a show? Let's just do the show. I'm still that person. I mean, every single time I talked to someone, I was like, you know what we should do? We should do a show where we where we combine like your wine expertise with stand-up comics. Like I'm mm -hmm. always just like, I mean, I guess I'm a little bit of a producer at heart in some ways, even though I got to say it's so nice when you're just talent. I've done a lot of producing in my life. It is so nice when you just have to worry about the creative and not the like, what do you mean there's a leak in the bathroom? Oh, don't get me started. I have to laugh because through an odd thing, you know, all of the venues that we did no-name shows out of pre-pandemic all went on some variation of pause. It looks like in the next couple of months or so, we'll be making inroads back to all of them, which is lovely. But basically, the only live performing I did in the last couple of years was in music, working with a, a guitarist, the wonderful Courtney Hill, who wrote and performed our theme music for this thing. It, we were invited to do some other shows. So it was like, it was just, I can't remember the last time I just showed up. And like you said, you just, I'm just talent. I didn't come up here and do my thing for 15 minutes and then sit down and watch other people and have yeah. a beer. And it's like, 
I had forgotten what that was like, you know. It's the greatest. But I also, you know, I love producing something because I just get to make it like I just have a vision of like how I want it to be with the people I love and the idea that I can bring all the people I love together on this thing and present the kind of show that I think I want. You know, that is very appealing to me. It's a very satisfying thing when it works well and when when it's over. And when it's over. (laughs) You're like, well, we did that. Sometimes I hate – well, I I hate creating, but I hate producing, but I love having produced. That's true. You know, sometimes, you know. that's right. But uh, we we were talking in a, uh, with a previous guest. You, you're talking about you know, there's a leak there. Uh, it's one reason we love autos. Autos is fucking indestructible. You know, <laughs> and and because before we landed there, we had like a place that we performed in a building that was like basically about to be condemned. It ultimately did get torn down and something new built. And it's a place we had places that closed down on sure. us. Various things. When we got to autos, we were like, are we going to bring our curse here? And they've had floods, a fire, and they bounced back two days later looking better than they did beforehand. So we we finally found the venue we can't kill off. And it's back open, (laughs) right? It's back open. (laughs) You know, we're having discussions about returning there. We love that place. You know what it was, what's nice about them, and I don't want to turn it into a commercial for them, even though I'd love to do that. When you are producing shows, it's nice to have a venue that really runs itself right, you know, that yeah. they take care of shit when shit happens. And it's like, all right, with all the things as a producer I need to worry about, I don't have to worry about that. 100%. Totally agree. So you're producing shows, you're making inroads into the into the clubs, are you, at this point? Yeah, producing clothes. I, I think the first club that passed me was, well, I was doing a little bit of stand-up New York, and but the first club that, like, passed me, past me, I guess, said we would like to have more of you here, was Gotham Comedy Club. I mean, I hosted a gazillion new talent shows there. (laughs) And then I started doing weekends. And, you know, I will be there tonight. So that has been my real, like, that place really helped me out so much and continues to. And it is my place of friends. And Broadway Comedy Club, too, just, oh, my goodness, so grateful, doing so much stuff there. And they would give you really long sets, which was so helpful when you're starting to have to do really long sets. You know, and then more recently, the Comedy Cellar. That does feel like you are with some of the greatest comics on the planet, whether they live in New York or are coming through New York. And every night there feels pretty special. It's wild when you're just like, they have four rooms going on right now. Um, and may, I think even talking about more rooms, because some of them are small and some are a little bigger. And they run a million shows. There's always audience. Just always. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. You're talking largely about places, again, that people do, they may go there to down a few as well, but they expect to see good comedy They there, expect to you see know? good comedy. Yeah, so you're getting some people at these places because they are in New York. They're like, we want to see stand-up comedy. And so they go for a brand that feels familiar exactly. to them. Exactly. And then, yeah, and there's other people that are just, they're comedy lovers. Just like back in Vancouver, there are people that I see at the cellar and Gotham, and they that's part of their every week, every couple weeks life. Now, how does that contrast with the storytelling scene, the moth and all of that? That's just blown up. I feel very lucky that I got to, I guess, be part of something from the beginning. I was going to say, you got in there at the right time. Yeah. So the moth is huge. Obviously, it's a huge podcast and radio show, and it is across the world. And they have a large staff. So I, I would just say 
You know, with storytelling, stand-up, I will go do a gig and I get paid. With storytelling, it is a little bit more for the love. Not like mm -hmm. when the moth asks me to do a bigger show, they don't pay the people. They do. But the idea of being a professional storyteller, you're not just going to you're not just going to work for the moth. Like, they're a, a curated show that uses different people all the time. So the storytelling thing is more like, you know, if you want to pursue that more, you, I guess, do a one-person show. Like, there's just storytelling is a different animal, I feel. It, there's no story, uh, yeah, it, it, there's no storytelling club, I guess is what I'm coming back to. <laughs> right, like, right, there's right. No, and I can't even imagine what that is. There are places that are open to that kind of entertainment. What would the cheesy names for, for a storytelling know, be club be? Worst. Yak Yak. Oh, oh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's all. We, we should I'll make be, it happen. I'll be at the Cleveland Yak Yaks this weekend. <laughs> yeah, we should make yeah. that happen. You know what? I do think storytelling is people who are really good at it are really good at it and they take it seriously. But it is more open to anyone from any walk of life that has a really good story that is important for everyone to hear. There's millions of those people. So I want to ask you another question with, with regards to storytelling. Is that what led to you writing your, your book? That, I love yeah. that book. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it did, really. I mean, I had a lot of those stories written. And then By the I way, was... I'm sorry. I should, since I referenced the, oh. book, the, the book, Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. That's is that right. correct? Yes. That's exactly right. All-time great titles. Oh, thanks. But anyway, I'm sorry. But no, I, would, I yeah. was wondering if that was like a, an out. Like, for example, I know Michelle Carlo's book, Fish Out of Agua, evolved out of her telling various stories in the storytelling scene. How did your book emerge? Yeah, I mean, kind of similar. I had a lot of these stories written in some form or another. And then as I was doing storytelling, I was writing more of these stories down and working them out on stage. But also, there was an agent in that audience, for one of the things, uh, one of those storytelling shows, and she got in touch with me. And I had been in touch with a different agent before and had sent them some material. And it was actually a very depressing situation where I kept sending material. They kept trying to help me write a proposal. And then they just basically ended up saying that they didn't like it. And I was crushed. Mm. And I just gave up on it. I was like, well, that's never going to happen. Uh, you know, it felt like years later. It was probably just a couple of years. This other agent approached me. Aaliyah, who's amazing, and she is an amazing agent. And we started talking, and she, I felt like she understood what I was doing. And she gave – I still had to write a proposal. It took me a year, but I understood what she was asking for. I felt like I could write in that manner. She understood what I had to offer. So it was a good combination. It was a good working relationship. And then she still had to go sell it. You know, there was plenty of no's, but one person said yes – and that's all you need. Just briefly, I want to touch base on how did you land in NPR and Ask Me Another? I'm constantly besieged by people telling me how much they hope it will come back and how much they miss it. Yeah. Well, it's never going to come back. Sorry. <laughs> that's totally out of my control. I have nothing to do with uh, that. I wish I could say I could make it come back, but I can't. Did Call I, NPR every day. I would be remiss if I didn't at least Thank bring you. that up. I would yeah. just know that they, that was a great body of work. And Thank a lot of people you. I agree. That and, I mean, a long time, nine years. But no, I was, uh, so I was doing a lot of hosting, but obviously not game show hosting, but a lot of hosting, a lot of stand-up. And this was a new show that they were taking a chance on. And actually, the audio engineer that I knew from the moth worked other public radio shows and knew that they were looking for a host for this show. And supposedly they had already seen every stand-up comedian in New York. 
but strangely not myself. But he recommended me and I auditioned. They, I mean, they didn't really know what they were looking for per se, which is often the case with auditioning. You hear this all the time. Yeah, I fooled them into it and got the job. They didn't know what they were looking for, and now they don't realize what they let go. Well, that's um, always so the way. that just freed you up for the podcast. Now we're bringing it back yeah. to where we started. So I have a new podcast with iHeart. So, yes, that was something, a project that I, we were working on with television. Then, And then I was hosting the NPR show, so actually, contractually, I could not host another show. So we're sort of... Uh, yeah, it's not like you wish for something to go away to be like, well, I guess I could do that. But then it did go away. Partially a pandemic tragedy for sure, because yeah. since it was a live show, <laughs> it was a live show. A little and bit of a factor. So, yeah, from working in the audio industry, I was like, I think I have another audio project in me. And I, it was not called Parenting as a Joke at the time. It had a different name. And so just kept thinking about remodeling it and retooling it for a podcast and just started talking to everybody. I had a book, which I still have. I never fulfilled this, but I the book title, like a journal book, writing book, uh-huh. I titled it 100 Meetings. And I was like, <laughs> I think if I get 100 meetings at the end, I will be able to sell this. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We just thrilled to talk to you. And as I'm finding out and doing this, you know, I start out with, with kind of a, you know, interviewing things like these are people that I know and I don't know them, you know, so it's really nice to Right, because not know. everyone just throws out all of their crap on the table. It, yeah, exactly. Where can people track you down for all the stuff you're doing? Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I'm at Ophira on Venmo. That's all you need. No, uh, you can find me. Send me five bucks. I'll tell you where I am. Go into your parents' pockets. (laughs) Take out that little piece of paper for one dollar. I'll tell you where I play. Keep that lawyer on retainer. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Uh, I'm at OphiraEisenberg.com and on the socials, which is the you know that's a real thing. Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. I'm at Ophira E. Thank you. God bless and good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to it more. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. You're welcome. Get out of here. Get out of here. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I love this woman. I love talking with her. And it was fun spending a few minutes with her when we're not coming and going from shows. Uh, The wonderful Ophira Eisenberg. Check out her new podcast on iHeartRadio. It is Parenting is a Joke. And if you missed it when it was first out, I recommend you check out her book, Screw Everyone, Sleeping My Way to Monogamy. As for us, well, we're going to get out of here, honestly, after everyone has cleared out. If you want to hang out, we're going to have a little bit of bonus content. More about that if you decide to hang out. If you don't decide to hang out, hope to see you in person. We're going to have some some in-person shows coming up soon. Uh, I'll let you know about them as we go through. But please, take good care of yourselves. My name is Eric Vetter. I love you all. Hey there, if you're still there, thank you for hanging out. Man, we've been having some fun over here, and we want to keep having fun. And we're going to have some music from one of our favorite members of Summer Replacements through the years, singer-songwriter Carla Lynn Hall. And it's it's a, a wonderful song of hers called Falling. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, a word from our bonus content sponsor, Word Up Bookshop in beautiful Washington Heights. 
Word Up Community Bookshop, located at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue. That's the corner of 165th Street and Amsterdam Avenue in Washington Heights. This is a wonderful place. It's a community-based place, and it is the bookshop with a little something extra. They have a great selection of new and used books, not only in English, but in Spanish and many other languages as well. They also have merchandise from notebooks to T-shirts to tote bags to games, all sorts of cool stuff there. It is largely volunteer-staffed. They also have programs for young people. There are artist events, author events. There are writing workshops, so please check them out. Lots of good stuff there. They also have an online bookshop. Do check them out at wordupbooks.com and support independent bookshops. That's always a good thing. Whenever you're in Washington Heights, uptown New York City, be sure to drop into Word Up Community Bookshop.
great. I hope you enjoyed that. I love that song. I, I love hearing her perform live. I, I love hearing the recorded version. Be sure to Google her and check her out. Her album is still available. Her album, Supernova, is out there. I know it was on Bandcamp. I'm sorry, I haven't done my research. But for God's sakes, you have Google. Check it out. Carla Lynn Hall. The album is Supernova. The song you heard was Fallen. And I love that song, and I love you guys. Take good care of yourselves. Until we meet again, my name is Eric Vetter.